The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. If you would like to follow along with your app on your phone or a Bible in the pew or your Bible, we're reading Psalm 67. We've been looking at uh, learning how to pray in this month of January using the Psalms. So praying Psalms really give us the vocabulary and the kind of the ABCs of prayers. I would say Psalm 67 is the closest thing to the Lord's Prayer that we'd see in the New Testament. So let's consider this uh, song, but it's also a prayer. Psalm 67, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity. Guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Well, this is a missionary psalm. It's a psalm about missions. It's also a psalm about Worship, And if you see the quotes if at the beginning of the bulletin, this is a psalm that inspired John Piper to write the book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And the quote that worship exists, or missions exist because worship does not. And that quote, or, you know, worship is, you know, that that is what we're going to be doing for eternity. But missions is a temporary thing. And that kind of Uh, book and that statement, just that first paragraph of the book, changed a lot of people's trajectory of thinking about life and why we're here on planet earth. And the question is, is why do we want God to bless us? You know, our presidents always end, the POTUS always ends every speech with, may God bless America. But I don't think that it's so that God will be glorified and exalted through us taking the blessings that he's given us so that we in turn can make his name great among the whole earth, that all the peoples would praise him. I think there are different (laughs) reasons, and it leads us to ask the question, why do we want God to bless us? Well, let me just start by showing you that Psalm 67 is sandwiched, obviously, between two other psalms, 66 and 68. And 66, if you look back to the very beginning of 66, it too is a missionary psalm. It begins with, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Sing to him glorious praise. Say to him, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. Come and see what God has done. And so really what you see in the Old Testament was that Israel had been blessed so that she would invite the nations to see this light and see this beauty and all the the glories of God, particularly related to the temple 
and God's blessings that flow from the temple, the presence of God. And so it's a come and see. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament is a go and tell. So it is a change. And so, uh, but the invitation is to all the earth, and all the earth is to worship him and sing praises to him. Then if you look at the end of Psalm 68, kind of the book ends, if you see the, jump to the end of Psalm 68, we see in verse 29, well, 28 says, Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. So here's this picture of kings coming to, to worship, and, and they're, they're doing the come and see, kind of like, uh, you know, if you were to, Go and look at a, um, a, a new piece of property and they're building a subdivision. What's the first thing they build? They build the model home so that everybody can come and see what it's going to look like. Come and see. You know, come and, and you walk through this. This is the model house. This is what it's to be. And this is what the kingdom of God looked like in the Old Testament. Come and see. Come on. And that was the idea of the Old Testament. The New Testament, it's now go and tell. Go, go spread this to all the world because God is no longer uh, located in one particular spot. Just as you know, the, the, uh, God began in Eden and then kicked them out, now he's bringing us back to this new heavens and new earth and he's, gonna, he's claiming every square, square inch of this uh, earth. And so this is saying, okay... Uh, because of your temple, kings shall bear gifts to you. And then in verse 31, you've even got nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. So you have these nations coming to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. And to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel, because he's the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So from 28 down to 35, you've got power mentioned four times. And what are we to declare in Psalm 67 that we want God to be known by? The answer is in verse 4. And it says, actually, verse is that. Your saving power. I'm blanking on it here. Verse 2, I was thinking it was way down. Okay, verse 2, your saving power among all the nations. So that's what we're to be declaring out to the world is God's power. Okay, so Psalm 67 is couched between, and a lot of these psalms have this idea of the nations and all the earth rejoicing and praising God. And so the problem is, is that that's not happening, right? So we have this problem where so much of the world doesn't know. And if you go down to the Museum of the Bible, and Dave Zaki actually works down there now, and, and you see, if you, if you go to where all the languages that have a completed translation of the Bible, and you have a whole bunch of completed translations of scriptures in all these different languages. And then you have all of these languages that don't have a completed translation of the scriptures. And there's oodles. Because there's still a lot of work to be done. And so the idea here is that God has a, a plan and it's to glorify himself. And so that's the, really the, you know, the, the purpose of why he made us is to make much of him. And if God was to glorify anything else, 
anything out on the earth or above the earth or any person or place, then what would that make God? An idolater like us. <laughs> but when he rejoices in himself because he's always been, he is. He is the great God. There's none like him. He is all-powerful. He is all-loving. He is all-knowing. He is completely sovereign. And so he must rejoice in himself. And out of the goodness of his rejoicing in himself, he is out of that overflow of love. He has created the world, and now he's redeemed the world through his Son, and so our job is to go and tell. And so what you see in this uh, psalm here is what to pray for and why. 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 Because verse 1 tells us what we're to pray for. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face to shine upon us. That's the what and the why. That your way may be known on the earth. Your saving power among all nations. God bless us, and the blessing of which he blesses us is both physical and spiritual. Matter of fact, if you look down to verse 6, it's the earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. It's when you bless us in an agrarian society, it's with crops, with prosperity. Joseph fed a lot of people when he went down to Egypt because God prospered Joseph. And he was the one that was now feeding nations, and nations are coming to him, and he's feeding we are a wealthy people. God has blessed us. Why has God blessed us? So that we would make his name known on the earth, his saving power among all the nations. And so we're not to keep all these blessings to ourselves. We're to be conduits, as Piper talks about, not cul-de-sacs. We're to be a launching pad as the church rather than a lounge pad. We're to be letting others know about this. So, and so you see this repetition going back and forth. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's a prayer. Let the nations be glad. Sing for joy. That's a prayer. Why? Because you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. When you think about judgment and judging the earth with equity, very interesting, C.S. Lewis's first chapter when he has this commentary on the Psalms, he takes up this idea that God is going to be judge and the people are actually excited about that. And he says, that doesn't, for most of us, that's a scary thought. God's going to judge the earth, rejoice. Like, you know, and we're, we tend to think of judgment as completely in, in vertical terms. God is going to bring judgment, but it's also horizontal. And the idea of the Psalms is so often is, who will be my advocate? Who will judge for me? Kind of like Luke 18, when this persistent widow is praying and she's not, the judge isn't listening to her and she just wants somebody to hear her case. And so often the poor get oppressed and, and widows' needs get neglected and, and they just get trounced on. And the people that have the voice and get the ear of the judge are the people that have money and influence and power. And so the idea of the, the judge will rule with equity is he will hear. He will hear all the people that are low. And so when Jesus comes, man, you're talking about the, the, the level places and make it all level. There will be no, God takes no bribes. He will bring equity and he hears the cries of his people. And so we're to rejoice because God will right all wrongs. He is bringing justice. And for you that think that you're not being heard in this life, 
you're being heard, and he will answer. And so that's the idea of God being judge and, and the idea of rejoicing all the earth. Let the nations be glad. And so this idea goes back and forth. What we're to pray for and then why. And then even as the earth has yielded its, its increase, he has blessed us. There's, there's the why again. Look what he's done for us. And then we're, we're blessing him. God shall bless us. Let all the earth fear him. And so it's a prayer. It ends again. The psalm ends with a prayer of, of the why. Like let all the earth praise his name. And so... You also see in Psalms 66 and 68, if you read those, that it's not just for God to bless us. It's blessed be God. Blessed be God. Is, is we want to give you the praise. And you see that running throughout the psalm. And so where does this come from? Well, the answer is, as you remember, is the Abrahamic blessing that was promised in Genesis 12 to Abraham. It's then pronounced on the people in a benediction in number 6. It's the blessing that's prayed for here in Psalm 67. It's the blessing that's poured out upon the church in Acts 2. In Genesis 12, where this begins, there's this incredible promise, and it's a major shift in the book of Genesis, and for that matter, for the rest of the Old Testament. We're still living in light of that promise. In chapter 11 of Genesis, the Tower of Babel was built, and man's trying to make a name for himself and build a a highway, build a city up to God, And God frustrates man's plans. He confuses their language. And as a result, all the different people groups and ethnic diversities begin to spread all over the earth. And for God to win his people for himself as he's purchased them on the cross out of every tribe, nation, tongue, and people, he begins by forming one nation, Israel. And he begins with these bedrock promises that he makes to Abraham. He tells Abraham, Abram, go from your country, all your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you. Doesn't tell him where he's going. And he says, I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. There is the idea. I'll bless you, make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so now we see where the psalmist is getting the theology for his prayers in Psalm 67. You see, and then this promise wasn't just to Abraham only, but God keeps repeating the promises to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, then to Israel as a nation, and then the benediction, which our service will close with today. Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, The Lord shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Well, as this blessing came to Israel, Israel was to be a light to all the nations. That was her calling and that's now the church's calling. Israel was to bring in the Gentiles so that they would come and see the glory of God. And so the psalmist is praying for that in Psalm 67. But we see in Jonah, and Jonah is kind of the, the personifies Israel. He personifies Israel and her pride and her haughtiness that the book of Jonah is meant to be kind of a rebuke of Jonah's arrogance. That Jonah discovers God's mercy and his grace for himself Even when he runs away, God swallows him with a fish, has a fish swallow him rather than him dying. 
And he's saved instead of being digested. He's delivered. And so he, and, and then he's called to go to Nineveh, preach to this city, and we see that God loves the whole world. He cares for cities. He cares for the goyim. That's the Hebrew word for nations. It means the heathens, the lost. And so God cares for these cities, and Israel was to go and proclaim it, yet Jonah thinks that nobody else is worthy of it, and nobody else deserves it, so I'm going to go over here, and I'm just going to watch and see what happens, because they don't deserve it. And what is grace? Giving you what you don't deserve. But he couldn't, the, he hadn't connected the dots, but yet we have the book, so we know that he did repent. Kylan Delich on classic commentary on Psalm 67 says, For it is the way of God that all the good that he manifests towards Israel shall be for the well-being of mankind. And so today you could say, it is the way of God that all the good that he manifests towards his church shall be for the well-being of mankind. And this psalm doesn't just give us a what and a why. But you could say it also gives us a who and a where and a how. You say, well, where's that? Well, underline the alls. I mean, the text doesn't say a few. A few people he wants to praise him. Or how about some? He wants some of the people to praise him? Or he wants many? Or a lot? No, all is used four times. It keeps repeating itself. Let all the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. That's how the, the psalm ends. You see, the who is all the people groups. And the where is as far out as you can go. When it says the ends of the earth, it actually means like the, the furthest. You know, as the psalm we just, or the song we just sung for all the saints in that last verse is from the farthest coast. They come streaming in, worshiping. The Lord, that's the idea, is that let all the ends of the earth, all the nations, that's the where, it's to the ends of the earth. And then how? How does he want them to praise him? Well, it includes a how, and that's in verse four. Let them be glad and sing for joy. You see, rejoicing and being glad is kind of the natural overflow of what you rejoice in. And when you are excited about something, it's just natural. I mean, recently, Will and Constance got married. And when they got married, even before the benediction was pronounced upon them, Constance was already raising the roof, which was just awesome. And what do you think all the people did as they were pronounced as husband and wife? Do you think they sat there and said, mm, amen? No, they stood up and they rejoiced and they clapped. And then we danced. And we had a great time because that was only fitting. It was natural. We rejoice when God reconciles us to himself of which marriage is a picture. If Constance is raising the roof, how much more are we going to be raising the roof when Jesus comes back and we're his bride forever and he delights in his people. You see, we rejoice and we want people to experience that joy in this life. And so we have to weed out the cat theology that so often we think, God, just bless me so that it can, it can be about my 
physical health, my emotional health, my needs, my preferences, my worship style, the way I want the service to be, the way that I think the church should be, my church, my, 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 my. Mm. We need to get rid of that so that he gets the glory. Let me give you a case study this morning in John G. Patton. And he was a Scottish missionary and just an amazing story. I read that just recently finished his autobiography. And here's a fellow that lived in Scotland, had a nice ministry going there in Scotland, and he felt the Lord had called him. And basically, I mean, they were trying to get people to go for a couple years, and nobody would go. They even drew straws. And if they had like a majority of people that everybody put in a name of who they think should go, <laughs> and they couldn't get, even get a majority. And finally, you know, John's like, I'll go. Okay, so the, he goes to the New Hebrides, which is a string of islands in the Pacific that stretches about 450 miles. So think New Zealand and then head north a couple thousand miles or think Australia and go 2,200 miles northeast. That's the New Hebrides. That's, you know, Papua New Guinea. Keep going. Okay, And so it's these islands that hadn't been discovered until the 1600s by a Spanish explorer. It would take another 230 years before two London missionaries made their first attempt to reach these people with the gospel in 1839. And the boat lets them down, they go in the dinghy to shore, and hate to say it, but they were killed, cooked, and eaten. Uh, instantly as they reached. These people were cannibals. So where they were going was what you would call a very, very difficult place. And so, matter of fact, when John G. Patton wanted to go, one of the guys from Scotland said to him, they're cannibals. You'll be eaten by cannibals. And he said to them, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. In the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And so he was compelled to go, even though everybody was telling him, the heathen are at home. Let us seek and save, first of all, the lost ones perishing at our doors. He said, this I felt to be most true and appalling fact, but I unfailingly observed that those who made this retort neglected those home heathen themselves, and so the objection as from them lost all its power. They would ungrudgingly spend more of a, on a fashionable party at a dinner or a tea or a concert or a ball or a theater or in some ostentatious display or of worldly or selfish indulgence ten times more, perhaps in a single day, than they were given a year and half a lifetime for the conversion of the whole heathen world, either at home or abroad. Objections from all such people must, of course, always count for nothing among men to whom spiritual things are realities. For these people themselves, I do and always did only pity them. As God's stewards, making such a miserable use of time and money entrusted to their care. And so he goes, even though everybody's telling him, stay. And so when he gets there, upon arrival, he's not even there a year. 
And he says, my dear wife, Mary Ann Robson, and I landed on Tana on the 5th of November, 1858, in excellent health and full of all tender and holy hopes. On February 12th, 1859, she was confined of a son. For two days or so, both mother and child seemed to prosper, and our island exile thrilled with joy. But the greatest of sorrows was treading hard upon the heels of that joy. My darling's strength showed no signs of rallying. She had an attack, a fever, a few days before her confinement. On the third day or so thereafter, it returned and attacked her every second day with increasing severity for a fortnight. Diarrhea ensued and symptoms of pneumonia with slight delirium at intervals. And then in a moment, altogether, unexpectedly, she died on the 3rd of March. To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, the dear baby boy whom we had named after her father, Peter Robert Robson, was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th of March. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me as for all others. It would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. So he loses his son and his wife within two weeks of each other. And he dug both their graves and buried them in the same place. He said this, I felt her loss to be beyond all conception or description in that dark land. It is verily difficult to be resigned, left alone, and in sorrowful circumstances, but feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits. I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his word, in his work. I do not pretend to see the mystery of such visitations wherein God calls away the young, the promising, and those sorely needed for his service here. But this I do know and feel, that in the light of such dispensations, it becomes us all to love and serve our blessed Lord Jesus so that we may be ready at his call for death and eternity. And so he begins his ministry without his wife and son. Well, the people treat him horribly. I mean, as you, and if you like adventure stories, I mean, this should be a movie because he is constantly being delivered as they're trying to kill him. And if they aren't trying to kill him, their stealing from him was unbelievable. I'll just read you this. He says, their skill in stealing on the sly was phenomenal. I mean, this is, this is who you're ministering to. You've left everything and you've come to this people and this is how they treat you. If an article fell or was seen on the floor, a tana man would neatly cover it with his foot while looking you frankly in the face and having fixed it by his toes or bending in his great toe like a thumb to hold it would walk off with it. Almost the most innocent look in the world. In this way, a knife, a pair of scissors, or any smaller article would would at once disappear. Another fellow would deftly stick something out of sight amongst the whipcord plates of his hair. Another would conceal it underneath his naked arm, while yet another would shamelessly lift what he coveted and openly carry it away. With most of them, however, the shame was not in the theft, but in doing it so clumsily that they were discovered. Once, after continuous rain and a hot, damp atmosphere, when the sun shone out, I put my bedclothes on a rope to dry, and I stood at hand watching and all the, also the wives of two teachers for things were miraculously disappearing almost under our very eyes and suddenly Miyaki, he was the devilish chief, the worst of them all. Miyaki, who was with his war companions, had been watching us unobserved, came rushing to me breathless and alone crying, Missy, that was his name, come, come in, quick, 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 I want to tell you something and get your advice. He ran into my house and I followed, but before I could get into his story, we heard two women crying out, Missy, Missy, come quick, Miyaki's men are stealing your sheets and blankets. So it was all a ploy for him to 
you know, run him into the house so they could steal his stuff. He said, once he said, during the rainy season, he said, which all are, the only way that they could cook food was we secured all of our cooking utensils, pots, dishes, everything else was locked under another house. He said, one night, that too was broken into. Everything was stolen. In consternation, I appealed to the chief, telling him what had been done. He flew into a great rage and vowing vengeance on the thieves, saying that he would compel them to return everything. But of course, nothing was returned. The thief could not be found. I, unable to live without something in which to boil water, at length offered a blanket to anyone who would bring back my kettle. Miyaki himself, after much professed difficulty, returned it minus the lid. This, he said, probably fishing for a higher bribe. He could not get at any price, being at the other side of the island. He's saying this tribe of which he had no control is where he got the kettle from. He does later get the lid, by the way. But, um, so he's, he's being treated horribly. I mean, and there's just adventure after adventure of unbelievable uh, acts of God to save his life. And it, but he says this, He says, having no means of redress and feeling ourselves entirely at their mercy, we strove quietly to bear all and to make as little of our trials as possible. Indeed, we gladly bore, we bore them all gladly for Jesus' sake. All through these sorrows, our assurance deepened rather than faded that if God only spare us to lead them to love and serve the same Jesus, they would soon learn to treat us as their friend and helper. And then he's got a couple of stories. I mean, there's tons of stories in there of him being delivered, but I'll share one or two with you real quick. One was um, these people with their chief had all came around his, his house and they were going to kill him. And he said, seeing that I was entirely in their hands, I knelt down, gave myself away, body and soul to the Lord Jesus for what seemed the last time on earth. Rising, I went out to them, began calm, calmly talking about their unkind treatment of me and contrasting it with all of my conduct toward them. I also plainly showed them that what would be the sad consequences if they carried out their cruel purpose. At last, some of the chiefs who had attended the worship rose and said, our conduct has been bad, but now we will fight for you and kill all those who hate you. Grasping hold of their leader, I held him fast till he promised never to kill anyone on my account, for Jesus has taught us to love our enemies and always to return good for evil. During this scene, many of the armed men slunk away into the bush, and those who remained entered into a bond to be friendly and to protect us. But again, their public assembly resolved that we should be killed because, as they said, they hated Jehovah and the worship, for it made them afraid to do what they'd always done which was to kill you and eat you. If I would give up visiting the villages and praying and talking with them about Jehovah, they intimated that they'd let me stay and trade with them as they liked the traders but hated the missionaries. I told them that the hope of being able to teach them the worship of Jehovah alone kept me living among them, that I was not there for gain, for pleasure, but because I loved them and pitied their estate and sought their good continually by leading them to know and serve the only true God. And one of the chiefs who lived in Sydney and spoke English replied for all the rest, Missy, our fathers loved and worshipped whom you call the devil, the evil spirit, and we are determined to do the same for we love the conduct of our fathers. So they're dealing with people that are admittedly love the devil. And it was hard work. And another time he catches them trying to steal his goats and he happens upon them and they all have weapons and muskets and now they're going to kill him. 
And he says to them, he said, I further assured them that I was not afraid to die, for at death my Savior would take me to be with himself in heaven, to be far happier than I'd ever been on earth, and that my only desire to live was to make them all as happy by teaching them to love and serve my Lord Jesus. I then lifted up my hands and eyes to the heavens and prayed aloud for Jesus to bless all my dear tannies and either to protect me or to take me home to glory as he, would, as he saw to be for the best. And one after another, they slipped away from me and Jesus restrained them once again. We could go on with this story. I mean, it's an amazing story of a man that was willing to leave all and to be treated so badly and we think about our circumstances and, and how difficult things is. And we, we have a hard time just getting people to come to church, much less go to the ends of the world and to be hated like that and to be treated where all your stuff is stolen from you. And yet this man does it. Why? Because he's compelled by this idea of Psalm 67, that he wants them to be happy in Jesus he wants them to know the Lord. He has such a, a zeal for the glory of God. He is a world Christian, not a worldly Christian. There's a big difference. A world Christian is a Christian believer with a global vision and awareness that he or she is part of an international body of Christ and one who, as a member of that body, shares a personal responsibility and a commitment to help start, to pray for, to grow, to see reproducing churches in every people group in the world. Worldly Christians, on the other hand, they want all these blessings for themselves. Bless my lifestyle, my priorities. It's the self-centered spirit of the age. And we just focus on immediate personal needs. And we see God as somebody who's to be on our side rather than us being on his side, you see. And so this psalmist breaks us out of that. It, it pushes us out to see that we are, we are blessed so that we will be a blessing to others. And so as a church, I would just say to remind you that this church is not ours to monopolize. Our God is not ours to monopolize. It's like the, the story of the, the lepers in 2 Kings. You remember they were, they, they, they were going to die during this famine. And they said so they go to the camp of the Assyrians and, and see if they'll spare their lives. We've got nothing to lose. And they, all these people had run off and left everything. And when the lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and they began to eat and drink and they carried off the silver and the gold and they went and hid them. And they came back and entered another tent and carried things off with it and they went and hid them. But then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Let us go and tell others this good news that our God is a global God and he's making people for himself from every part of this world. And that should be our prayer and our life desire. So we need to get on board with what God is doing. And so one of the ways that we do that as a church is by praying for our missionaries, but also supporting them. And even our offering that we do every year, we do this Whitefields offering, and it's to go to support more projects, more plans, more able to bless more people. And one of the privileges I have as the pastor is, like I'm the chairman of our RUF committee, just as an example. And we get to meet with the different committee members. And I get to see firsthand what, what the money does when you hear these stories 
of hearing people coming to Jesus on these campuses. And sometimes they're international students and they're going back to their countries. And you're hearing this, you're like, yes, praise God. I always leave encouraged that because God is often working among the younger people. And so God is at work and we need to get on board with what he's doing. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would renew us, that you would forgive us of our selfishness. We thank you now for the privilege to come to your table, to be reminded that all the blessings are ours because of what you did and you experienced the curse. Lord, help us not to keep all these blessings to ourselves or to hide them. Pray that, Lord, you would so fill us that we would overflow in wanting to share this good news with others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.